kids, kindergarten through fifth grade. You guys can make your way to the back, and your teachers are back there waiting for you. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, just two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15, and I'll read these for us in a moment. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a, there is a stack back in the back, and uh, and by all means, stand up and go grab a copy. Uh, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, if you don't have the app downloaded um, on your phone, whatever it is that you choose to use, it's good that you have these verses in front of you as I, as I read them this morning and as we talk through them, exactly what, what God has communicated to us through his, through his word. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 14, and I'll read verse 15 as well. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These two verses are incredibly important in our understanding of the whole of Scripture, not just the Genesis narrative, but all of all of Scripture. And so far, everything that we've seen has been vitally important, but especially when we get to verses 14 and 15, all of a sudden we see a plan unfolding. A plan unfolding. Achilles was the greatest of the ancient warriors in Greek mythology. Achilles was the son of Peleus, the king of the Myrmidons, if you know Greek mythology at all. During the Trojan War, Achilles slayed the mighty Hector, but you all know it, Achilles had a flaw. He had one flaw. And in the mythology, Achilles' mother, Thetis, when Achilles was born, attempted to make Achilles immortal by dipping him in the river Styx. Not the 70s and 80s band. The, uh, the river that separated the earth from, from the underworld. But when Thetis dipped Achilles into the river Styx, she held on to his, his heel. And it wasn't submerged like the rest of his body. At the end of the Battle of Troy, Achilles was shot through the heel by Paris with an arrow, and it proved to be fatal. Our passage this morning introduces us to one who would not suffer from an Achilles heel. Even though he would suffer an injury in that same place, it would not prove to be fatal. But before we get there, before we get to verse 15, let's consider where we've been and then consider also verse verse 14. In the last two weeks, we saw Adam and Eve sin by failing to adhere to God's word given to them. Now, the serpent comes to Eve and deceives her open. He deceives her, and because she was not clear on God's word given to her, she she was in fact deceived. She takes the fruit and she eats of it, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God commanded Adam not to eat of. He gives it to her, or she gives it to him rather, and she eats. 
and he eats. Adam's act of rebellion then introduces sin into the world. But when God, as we saw last week, when God approaches Adam and Eve in the garden, he shows up walking in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve hide, hide from him. God finds them. He locates them because he's God. And he asks them some questions. Where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God asks him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded to you? Instead of confess the sin that Adam had engaged in, he doubles down and he blames God and he blames the woman that, that God gave to him. Adam and Eve, and then Eve, when she's questioned, she points the finger at the serpent. They accept no responsibility for their actions. If they convince God that they were victims of another's actions, they couldn't be possibly be responsible, right? We know that that's wrong. They are absolutely responsible for their actions. And yet God approaches them kindly. And despite God's kindness, though, they double down and seek to self-justify. And so, that sets up verses 14 through 19. Verses 14 through 19. God is going to address each of the parties involved, beginning with the least responsible and moving to the most responsible. First, the serpent, which we'll look at this morning. Second, the woman, which we'll look at next week, and then in two weeks, what God says to Adam. Again, we're just going to focus on what God says to the serpent in these two verses this morning, though. We might be tempted to think when we read these two verses, or we're reading the account up to these two verses for the first time, that God's about to drop the hammer. That God is about to drop the hammer. And while the hammer does come down hard... There is a promise contained within that God will redirect that hammer. God is going to send someone to absorb the fullness and the finality of the punishment brought on by the sin that originates here in the Garden of Eden. And so let's consider this text together. Embedded within what God says to the serpent in verses 14 and verse 15, we have two Two words that I want to give to you. We have first have the curse, and that's kind of the whole thing. But then embedded within 15, we have covenant. Curse and covenant. So look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14. The first thing that we need to see is that God does not ask questions of the serpent in the way that he asked Adam and Eve. There is no gently drawing the serpent out. God asks Adam, where are you? And of Eve, what is it that you have done? But the serpent gets no such questioning. And this furthers our understanding of the intimacy that God shares with his image bearer. God is kind, he is generous, and his children are just that, his children. But to the serpent, God leads in with, because you have done this. He doesn't ask questions. Because the serpent is meant to be subject to his image bearers, not bear God's image himself. And so, God simply delivers the curse in verse 14. 
And the serpent is cursed above all livestock, God says. Above all the beasts of the field, God says. The serpent is to go on his belly and to eat dust. Now, because of the attempts to disrupt God's created order, this is what the serpent does. He attempts to disrupt God's created order. The serpent is designed to be subject to the man and woman and yet tries to put himself above them. Because of this attempt, God curses him. We see that the curse is all-encompassing. He says, all of the livestock, all of the beasts of the field, and all of the days of your life. The serpent doesn't get a second chance. He does not get a second chance here. We also see there's a physical nature to the curse that God speaks to the serpent. God says that the serpent will go on his belly and he will eat the dust. Now, what do we make of this? And some have suggested that the serpent walked upright before this or had legs, that sort of thing. And that may have been the case. The text doesn't really tell us beyond that. I think, first and foremost, we should take this to mean that the serpent's posture was given new significance. Through the curse that God speaks here, an existing reality is given meaning. God gives meaning to this existing reality. What I'm saying is that the serpent probably slithered around on the ground from the moment God created him. But now, God's word shows the humiliation that the serpent is subject to. That humiliation is also seen in eating the dust. And Psalm 72, Solomon prays that the king's enemies would lick the dust. It's a humiliating phrase. That notion carries over into our time too. Uh, Queen wrote a song called Another One Bites the Dust. That's the anthem of athletic superiority of one person over the other. And a kid may yell to his friends, eat my dust as he races another one on his bike. It is humiliating to eat dust. It means that you've lost. It means that it's over for you. It's no different here. The other thing that I would say about verse 14 is that it's important to see that there's no restoration promised for the serpent. There's no restoration promised for the serpent. He says the last line there in verse 14, all the days of your life. The serpent is to go crawling on his belly, eating the dust in humiliation. He continues Even when creation is promised to be restored, even when creation is said to be brought back to the state that it was before sin entered the world. Isaiah 65 picks up on this notion. In verse 25, Isaiah describes the restoration of creation. What we're looking forward to as a a people. Isaiah writes, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. That's different than currently. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. That's different than currently. And dust shall be the serpent's food, not different than currently. The curse that is given to the serpent is one that continues. Wolves eat lambs, lions eat oxen, but in this restored paradise they will live in harmony, but the serpent still eats dust. Something that we haven't explored so far in Genesis chapter 3 is who is exactly the serpent? Who is this? Now, we may be assuming so far that this is indeed Satan, and I would say that you're right if you're assuming that. We just haven't explored it because the text hasn't given us 
need to yet. And the text just uses the word serpent. And if we take into consideration the rest of the Bible, though, this is where we see that this is indeed Satan. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation gives us the clearest interpretation of who the serpent is in Genesis 3. He says in Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. John says that this is, uh, that he is called the devil, which means slanderer, and Satan, which means accuser. And we're told that he is the deceiver of the whole world. That's certainly in step with what we see in Genesis chapter 3. In modern Christianity, though, we don't oftentimes talk about Satan. Either we do a whole lot or we don't at all. There's no real middle ground. That's probably a problem. Satan is an accuser and a deceiver and a slanderer. He's not the little red guy that sits on your shoulder with horns and a pitchfork telling you to say a swear word. That's not who Satan is. And he's not an equal power to God as some have attempted to make him. He's not arm wrestling with God for control of your life. Rather, Satan accuses believers before God and he uses worldly things to tempt and to twist God's word. That's who Satan is. We see this clearly in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Satan tempts Jesus and even quotes scripture to Jesus, albeit out of context. He twists it and Jesus identifies the error and resists the devil. On the other side of things, some believers fixate on Satan, but the Bible is clear that Satan is a defeated enemy, especially for those of us New Testament believers. Satan is a defeated enemy. In 1 John 4, 4, John says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And like we see here in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is active in the world, but his end is clarified and his power is limited. But Satan's deception and actions do not give Adam and Eve a free pass. The devil made me do it is not an excuse that they're going to get by with. It's not going to fly with God. And Satan is absolutely cursed here, but remember this is an order of least responsibility to most responsibility. The sa- Satan, the devil, the serpent is cursed here. God gave Adam his word, and going against it, no matter what anyone else says, is sin. So Adam becomes the most responsible party here, because he received God's word directly. So to summarize verse 14, there's two things that I want you to pull out of this text and walk away with. By adding significance to the serpent's posture, God makes his posture about humiliation. And by making the curse for the serpent irreversible, there is no restoration promised to the serpent. Those are the two main things that we see here in verse 14. But incredibly, in verse 15, we see embedded here, within this curse, it's still this curse, but embedded here we see God covenanting with man and woman. God says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, addressing directly the serpent, but there is 
good news embedded here in verse 15 for the man and woman. Enmity between them. Offspring that will bruise his head. This is the first indication that God intends to redeem his people. Adam and Eve sinned. But God tells them here that this won't be the end of the story. This is another phenomenal display of God's kindness. God generously promises the solution here in verse 15 to the mess that Adam and Eve have have made. Now the reason I say this is a covenant is because God is making a promise to Adam and Eve to send a Redeemer. The offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman's heel. Eve, when we get into chapter 4, will misguidedly think that this is her son Cain, but quickly realize that it's not. This is someone who would come further down the line. The nature of what God says here, the nature of this promise or this covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve through the cursing of the serpent is unconditional. There are covenants in the Old Testament given that are in fact conditional. But this one, and I'll give you a few other examples, is unconditional. A covenant, if you're wondering, is a promise between two or more people or parties, groups of people, that is set to accomplish specific actions. The reason I say this is unconditional is because the promise of God is clear. Enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring and his offspring and a bruised head and a bruised heel. The promise is clear, but there's no if statement here. It's not not conditional. So what transpired in the garden, the disobedience and the neglect of God's word, the willful rebellion, despite all of this, God had a plan to make it all right. And this plan is not conditional. It's not conditional. God is sending someone to pay the penalty of sin and deal with the result that comes about death. That's seen through the crushing of the head or the bruising of the head of the serpent. God will accomplish this plan. Parents, sometimes we tell our kids, if you clean your room, you can have some candy or something along those lines. But God is saying, this is what I'm giving you and there's no condition. And before we're through with Genesis chapters 1 through 11 in the series we're in, we'll see another unconditional covenant given. God tells Noah, after the flood, that he will not destroy the earth again with water. No condition. And later in the book of Genesis, we'll get to it someday, for Abraham, God promises to make him a great nation. To make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky. Again, this is conditionless. Later in the Old Testament, to King David, God tells him that he is going to establish his throne forever, without condition. 
These are gracious covenants that God makes with his people, but do not rely on human faithfulness or behavior, but demonstrate clearly the faithfulness of God. God remains committed to his people so much so that he would make a conditionless covenant with them. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is saying in verse 15, I will not abandon you. The grace of God is dramatically evident here. For the rest of our time together in this text, though, I want to think specifically about the implications given here. That's one of them, that God will not abandon his people, and that the grace of God shown through that is is dramatically evident. But the first implication that I want to flesh out here is that God has a plan. Now, this may seem elementary, but it's important to note. God has a plan. When reading the events of Genesis chapter 3, we may be inclined to think that this all caught God off guard because it would have caught us off guard. You know what it's like to be wronged by someone and said, I didn't think that that person was capable of this. But God is not surprised by any of what happens. Adam and Eve's sin was not a surprise to God. The disruption of creation order was not a surprise to God. Responses of self-justification and finger-pointing, not a surprise to God. Friends, that's good news for you and me. God is not surprised by anything you say or do. You may have been caught off guard this week or in the last month by something that came your way or even the way that you acted or handled the situation. Say, how could this have happened to me? Is this who I am? What does this mean? But God is not caught off guard by any of it. We should take comfort in that. God has a plan. And for those who are in Christ, us together, if you've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God has a plan. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the you there is plural. He who began a good work in you all. In all of you out there who are in Christ, he who began a good work in all of you, he will bring it to completion. And so we need to recognize that while God does have plans for each of us individually, he is primarily concerned with the collective of his people. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to redeem a people for his own possession. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Jesus, or or maybe you're not sure that God even exists, maybe that's you. I wonder what you think about this idea that God has a plan. I wonder what you think about that. Are there events or all of the events in your life that are just happenstance? Are the ways of the world and what happens out there is just a result of chance? What's governing your destiny? Maybe you're not fatalistic at all. To those things, I would appeal to Genesis 3.15. 
God has a plan. And he promises to execute his plan. The serpent's head will be crushed by the heel of the one who will come to make all that has gone wrong here right again. God's created order is upset. And yet he knows and has a plan. That's the first implication I want you to see. God has a plan. The second is this. God is in the redemption business. From these verses, we can conclude that God intended to display His divine attributes through redeeming people. Let me say that again. God intended to display His divine attributes through redeeming people. Redemption here is the idea of purchasing something back. Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, including us, are born into a state of sin and sinfulness. And God's intent to bring us out of that sin and sinfulness is what we call redemption. Paul writes in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, the 18th century pastor theologian Jonathan Edwards, you've heard me talk about him a bunch, He wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. And what he means is, why did God create the world? That's the question he's asking. In the book, Edwards asked, why did God create everyone and everything? What is the purpose? And the answer, Edwards concludes, is that God created everyone and everything for his own glory. And we ask, what is that? What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Because that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Like, I want to glorify God with X, my work and my marriage and my parenting and my grandparenting. What it means is we want to accurately display who God is. That's what it means to glorify God, is to accurately display who God is. To give God praise for everything that He is in His very being. So if someone says, for example, I want to glorify God in my work. I want to glorify God in my work. Again, sometimes let's do this for the glory of God is the thing that gets said, but what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean? I think what it actually means and what that person should mean when he or she says, I want to glorify God in my work, is that person wants to accurately display God's character and honor God's purposes in his or her work. This requires a heightened level of intentionality in our work. But, again, that person wants to accurately display God's character and honor God's purposes in his or her work. If that is the aim, the ultimate aim, then your aim, in your work, then your aim is to glorify God. So we ask, well, okay, sure, but then how do we do that? What does that actually look like? Here are some ways. Not exhaustive, but maybe some ways to kickstart the brain. Working joyfully. It glorifies God when the source of your joy is not found in the range of ease or difficulty that your work presents, but when God is himself is the source of joy. I said all that. That's, a, that's wordy. What I mean is you don't find your joy in your circumstances. If someone's mean to you at work or takes over the project that you were designated for, you still find joy because your source is 
God and not the work itself. So work joyfully. The second thing is work honestly. It glorifies God when you operate in honesty and integrity, even when it introduces difficulty. God cannot lie and commands us not to also. Lack of integrity in our work is deception. Working honestly glorifies God. Again, the last thing I said, not an exhaustive list, but it glorifies God when we don't find our identity in our work. If we find who we are in in our work, we cannot find our identity in Jesus also. Talking about money, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. But I think the principle applies here as well. Some of us serve our work before we serve Jesus or think that we can have our cake and eat it too. God is glorified through us when we accurately display who he is and praise him for who he is in his commensurate actions. So, when we say God is in the redemption business, because he's clearly setting forth a plan to redeem people for his own possession, when God displays his divine attributes through the redemption process, he is glorified. Our actions reveal our character. Our actions reveal our character, and it is not different with God. It is not different with God. God is gracious. He unconditionally promised and provided Jesus to bear our sin for us. God is patient. He bears with sinners. He's not quick to anger. God is kind. He draws sinners out and gently leads them to repentance. God is abounding in steadfast love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are four attributes of God that are clearly on display in his act of redemption. By revealing the plan to redeem his people, God shows us clearly who he is. And so God is in the redemption business. Friends, God's perfect plan here is to send Jesus. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And it would come at a cost. It would come at a cost of a bruised heel. But through this act, through this act, an act that would ultimately find its realization in the cross of Christ, when Jesus died there, Jesus would be wounded, not mortally, but on his heel. But the blow that Jesus would deliver to the serpent, that blow would be fatal. Jesus ends the tyranny of death by crushing the head of the serpent through dying on the cross and walking out of the tomb three days later. So God is in the redemption business. Finally though, consider with me that death was introduced through the sin that Adam and Eve sinned But that death had an expiration date. That death had an expiration date. Death was going to die. Seems like a silly thing to say, but death was going to die. Some of you are young in this room and don't think about death all that often. Mark Twain said, in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And this passage doesn't help us with the taxes piece, but okay. 
I said earlier that Achilles was the greatest of all the warriors in, in Greek mythology. But friends, Jesus is greater than Achilles. And I know Achilles is fake. He's mythological. But indulge me for a second. When the heel of Achilles was threatened, it proved deadly for him. When the heel of Jesus was threatened, it proved deadly for death. Like milk in the fridge that reaches its expiration date, death had reached its expiration date. And it's promised here in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. You can't even get out of the first three chapters in Scripture before you see that God has a plan to redeem His people, to bring them back to the place where they were meant to be. And He was going to send someone to put an expiration date on death. The heel of Jesus would be bruised, but death would die. Friends, through the words He spoke to the serpent, through the words that God spoke to the serpent, it was clear that God's intent was to bring to an end the sin of Adam and Eve that they had set into motion and that they would give to their children and their children's children. The death that they were unable to elude would be dealt with through the offspring of the woman. And through the offspring of the woman, you and I can have the utmost confidence that death is not the end for us. Earlier when we were in Genesis, this is our seventh week in the book of Genesis. But earlier, in the first couple of weeks, one of the takeaways I said for us is that we should marvel that God created everything with His Word. And friends, I also want you this morning to marvel with what God is bringing about through His Word. The redemption of His people. The plan that He instituted. God in His goodness was not going to allow death to have the final say. Satan would be dealt with. And death here is given an expiration date. God promised through an unconditional covenant to do this here, this very thing right here in Genesis 3.15. And so my hope this morning in conclusion is that you would see two things and then we'll be done. Two things. Again, not mind-blowing, but important to Allow to seep into your heart and to direct your day. First thing is this. That you would see that God isn't winging it. Now this is sort of just saying God has a plan in a different way. But I think sometimes we're wondering if God is winging it. Is he just winging it in my life? Is he winging it in our community? Is he winging it in our country? Is he winging it across the globe? God's not winging it. See here that what God comes about when Jesus comes to earth a few thousand years later, it was clearly divulged right here. God isn't like you and he's not like me. He doesn't need to improvise. He doesn't need to compromise. God is God. God isn't winging it. The second thing that I would like you to take away this morning is that you would see that God is for you. 
If you're in Christ, God will not allow anything, even death, to get in the way of his purposes for you. If, if you're in Christ, God will not allow anything, even death, to get in the way of his purposes for you. That truth, that truth needs to govern everything that you do this week and every week, every moment. If you're in Christ, God will not allow anything, even death, to get in the way of his purposes for you. Do not succumb to thinking that God may be against you because of circumstances or because of difficulties because of thoughts or feelings that you may have that suggest otherwise. God is God, and God is for you. If you struggle to see that, consider that God did not spare his own son and put death to death through the death of Christ to bring you back to him. So again, these are the two things that I want you to walk away with this morning and to really marvel at this week. God isn't winging it, and God is for you. I said earlier, if there was a, if there was a thought in your mind, I, I don't really know where I stand before God, or maybe I'm not really sure if even God even exists. This morning, again, I would appeal to you from this very verse, that God promised Adam and Eve in the garden to send someone who would redeem them. Friends, that redemption is open to you. God made a way through sending Jesus Christ to live the life that we couldn't live because of our sin. He was sinless. To die the death that we deserved because of our sin. He went into the ground, even like we saw pictured this morning in baptism. He went into the ground and came up three days later, walked out of that grave, and through, through what he accomplished, he invites us to walk out of the grave with him as well to spend eternity with our Creator God in His presence. That's the promise that's clearly communicated in Genesis 3.15 and the thrust of the rest of Scripture. Trust Jesus this morning. Don't allow another moment to go past. Trust Him. Turn from your sin. Be made whole. And this promise then is for you. Let me pray.